You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Fuck me, I'm drinking. Welcome to episode 16 of the Life in Ruins podcast. We are back with another edition of Our Ruined Lives. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Candy Johnnen and David Howe. Today's podcast hostage is Lana. Lana. Lana! Brock. Lana is a dual PhD candidate in the Department of Anthropology and Cognitive Science program at Indiana University Bloomington. She works at Old Divide Gorge as a student researcher at the Stone Age Institute, and she's an avid science communicator through IU Science Blog, SciU. Their Instagram handle is at SciUblog. Lana is a proud Texan and got her BA in anthropology at Texas Tech University and her MA at Florida Atlantic University. She has worked in Ecuador, Nicaragua, and Tanzania, focusing on stone tool technologies and tool making techniques. Lana is an interdisciplinary scientist and a self-described Stone Age neuroscientist. Her research combines brain imaging techniques with experimental archaeology to explore how our uniquely human system of technology, language, and cognition evolved. Unfortunately, Lana allowed Carlton to be one of her participants for her dissertation research, and we are very excited to spill the tea on how that disaster went. Spill the tea? Really? Well, thank you, uh... Lana, for being on, if you don't mind starting out by introducing who you are and what you do, we got like a brief intro at the beginning, but. Sure. So yeah, I'm in my fifth year of getting two PhDs, I guess, at IU in Indiana. Um, Yeah, I'm in two departments, the Department of Anthropology and Cognitive Science, and I'm generally interested in how and why human cognition evolved and whether or not archaeology can tell us anything about that. That's that's cool. Is getting two PhDs harder, twice as hard as getting one PhD? I would say yes. So I had to do like twice the amount of coursework in the U.S. A PhD involves coursework in other countries. That's not true. But I had a full set of coursework in anthro and a full set of coursework in cognitive science. I had to take two qualifying exams and some PhD programs don't have any qualifying exam procedure. So that was pretty difficult. But I only have to write one dissertation, so that's really that's the winner here. Well, that's that. Oh, makes, okay, yeah, that's good. That makes it a little better. Were you always interested in um, kind of anthropology and archaeology and neuroscience behind that? No. So yeah, I showed up to college not even knowing what anthropology was, other than the clothing store. Um, and I, <laughs> yeah. So I started off as a marine biology major and I took a biological anthropology class as an arts credit for my science major. And I just really liked it. And that was my freshman year in college. So I just kept taking anthropology classes as I went and if they fit into my semester and like fit a gen ed requirement. And then I was like in my second semester of my junior year when I realized like I want to keep taking anthro classes, but that's not my major. <laughs> Maybe I should switch that. Um, so yeah, I didn't change my major until basically my senior year in college. And I would say even still today, I think I'm evenly split between archaeology and like biological anthropology. But yeah, and all the brain sciences stuff came later after I graduated from undergrad and started doing my master's and stuff. What was like your aha moment in anthropology class that you were like, okay, this is what I want to do. So aside from loving everything that I did in courses and just being really into the topic and how it was like 
it was more applicable to me, I feel like, to real world things and all my other science classes. But my aha moment, yeah. um, I was taking a human evolution class my junior year. Um, and we had to write like a term paper and on a whim, I decided to write a term paper and like, when did we all evolve to be right-handed? And I didn't really realize, but we don't have an answer to that question. And then it just became fascinating to me. And I've been kind of trying to pursue that topic ever since. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. That's, that's, that's really interesting. So did you end up, you saying you got, you finally changed your major um, to anthropology your senior year. Did you end up doing a field school as part of that? Yeah. So in between my junior and senior year, I did a field school in um, Salango in Ecuador. It's it's along the coast. And it was a joint field school run through my undergraduate university, which was Texas Tech, and through Florida Atlantic University, which is where I ended up getting my master's after I graduated. Um, So my field school is in Ecuador. I turned 21 there. That was super fun. And I was trying to decide at that point if I really liked archaeology or biological anthropology more. And then realized that I could really make the two work together. That's called a uh, bioarchaeology, right? The conjunction between archaeology and biological anthropology. So I would say yes, in most cases, except when you do human evolution research. So if you do paleoanthropology, which is research into our, our ancestors, our extinct ancestors, you can do like bioarchaeological things like trauma or aging and sexing an individual. But since there are so few fossils, it's not really the same type of thing as like a classic bioarchaeology type career, if that's making sense. But like I'm just as interested in the biological process of evolution as I am in like the cultural process involved in archaeology, if that makes any sense. Yes. It does. Yeah, it does. So how did you transfer from working in um, South America to then working at Olduvai Gorge in Tanzania? Carlton, open up a map. Where the fuck is Ecuador? South America. Oh, my God. Right? <laughs> yeah. No, you're right. You're right. I just really <laughs> Everyone here is fired. Everyone. Everyone. <laughs> I was like, I think it's like next to Belize. I don't know. So I did. (laughs) Okay, let me save y'all's lives here because I've worked in South America and in Central America, you lucky little ducks. Um, (laughs) So yeah, Nicaragua being in Central America, Ecuador being in South America. So yeah, I didn't start going to Olduvai until I was in my PhD program. So I didn't really have um, access to Africa. If you don't do a field school, there's, I would say, a little bit more difficult. You have to become part of a team that works there and get invited and stuff. Um, Mafia. Mafia. Yeah, it's not not (laughs) unlike a mafia. Can we say that? It's not entirely unlike a mafia, but there are lots of things that are like... Waste management. Anyways, um, yeah. So I was basically invited invited by my advisors to start fieldwork in Africa, but it helped that I had been doing fieldwork before. So could like the three of us who all have years of work in archaeology in the United States just show up to Tanzania saying, what up, bitches, we're here to dig? If you want to pay the, you know, $4,000 in flights and then the $1,000 for the permit and then the $4,000 to stay at camp, sure, go ahead and show up. Oh, uh, yeah. So that's that's some gate. Yeah, right. That's pocket, chump change. Pocket nothing. change. Um, yeah. And so African-based <laughs> um, field programs are often a little bit prohibitive to some, uh, prohibitive being a big word, but they're hard to go to for a lot of students just because it is quite expensive. By students, you mean plebes. 
And uh, <laughs> why is it so expensive if the camp is leaky? Okay, one. God damn it. Oh my God. <laughs> We're off to a good start. <laughs> that's the best joke i i really that is the best joke i've ever heard and that's why this is going well okay nobody's ever made, made that two weeks what? ago oh you guys are great i'm so proud of you everybody's just oh my god all right all right lana continue continue we will be professional and we will listen so it's cost prohibitive to not only transport your body to Africa, but then also to get the permit to work there as well, because they have some pretty stringent cultural laws. And then on top of that, you have to pay an extra couple grand just to live there in a bunch of leaky tents. <laughs> right. And so the important thing about like where that money goes to, it essentially pays for the maintenance of the camp and the wages for the people that we work with. So it's well-spent money. Olduvai is in a protected area. It's called the Ngorongoro Conservation Area Authority. And it's a it's like a wildlife and cultural protection area. So our fees essentially cover us using this protected government space. So it's worth it. And the camp is amazing. We have Wi-Fi. We have flush toilets. We have showers. We're pretty bougie out there. I personally, now wow. that I'm not a plebe, I have a tent that I can stand up in so I can like stand up while I put oh. on my pants. Like it's a big deal. Dude, that makes all the difference. Yeah. It's a huge <laughs> save my life. Yeah. That's that's so it's a great camp. Do you end up in, so you said you employ, do you employ people from local, local folks in the areas or, um, cause I know in a previous episode, Dr. Anderson said that they actually work with yeah, local, local communities and try to, and, input that cash they're spending there into the local communities to make them, to help them out for their hard work. Is that something you guys do there? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we employ local Maasai, which are the like herders that are endemic to that area or that they're the ones who have lived there for a long time. Um, so we employ very local locals in that sense, but we also bring in other Tanzanians from like the nearby city um, which is called Karatu, and then the nearby bigger city, which is our like kind of academic home base, which is called Arusha. So we kind of bring like a crew and pick them up along the way as we drive from the big city into the gorge itself. Yeah, and Dr. Anderson, actually, he mentioned there's a, there's still one Maasai there who worked with the Leakies in the, you know, 70s and 60s. And his uh, name is Matimba. Uh, just real quick, that was um, not Dr. Anderson. That was Chris Webster. Uh, I'm fired. Good job, though. No. <laughs> but yeah, um, Matimba's still around. It's really cool. And he just like goes around helping out however he can, even though he's, you know, up in years. But yeah, we work with locals all the time and it's really beneficial. They also work on multiple teams. So I'm on one team at Old Divide, but there are four other teams that work there. And our staff will essentially rotate between different research teams, which all work in the gorge at different points in the year. Have you ever found the naturally in hand axe? That's the amazing thing about Olduvai is there are fossilized bones and just amazing stone tools everywhere. Um, so you can be walking around and there's a hand axe on the surface that has just eroded out from last year or something like that. 
Um, the site that I've worked at every year since I've been there, which is four years in a row, we specifically chose it because the leakies found a lot of hand axes there in the 60s. So we were targeting hand axes. And yeah, it's like entirely different to hold something that, you know, somebody manufactured 800,000 to a million years ago. It blows my mind. But yeah. Yeah, it's pretty yeah. crazy. Cool. So for our listeners, the Shulian hand axes were the stone tool technology that Homo erectus produced, um, which is quite currently the second oldest tool technology, with the first being Oldowan from Australopithecus. I'm totally fucked up. Correct. I'm so wrong. No. What did, ha- did Homo habilis produce? I think that was that. Yeah, Homo yeah. habilis was the Oldowan. Uh, what was what was uh, Australopithecus? They just walked on I don't think they have any evidence for oh. stone tool manufacturing. Um, so if you talk to her name is Sonia Harmond and she's um, out of like, she does work originally uh, in Kubifori in Kenya. Um, but she found these old tools in Malawi, which is south of Tanzania. And she calls it the Lamekwi technology. Um, that made the cover of nature maybe three years ago because they think it's three million years old which is way older than the old one, which is 2.5 million years old. Oh. But it's a single, it's like two or three napped cores, or it's like only a few pieces, right? It's not an entire site. Um, I know they've been working in those deposits to try and find more examples of the Lumequi, but if that technology industry is true and it's dated that old, then that would be associated with Australopithecines. Wow. Hot topic. Nature and, seems to like publishing things with a few little stone tools in it. Well, yeah, that and, uh, you know, mammoths that were hunted 120,000 years ago, uh, old, that 120,000 in California. It's a whole fucking deal. Bob Kelly protested it, rightly so. But Steve Holland, he's my boy. I work in Lynch. That's where he's from. Anyways, well, since we only have like a couple of minutes left of this segment, does anyone have any more further questions regarding like working in Africa or the Central America or South America? Oh, wait, Lana, you have something? I just wanted to go back. I totally agree that the things that nature and science publish often are very high sexiness, not necessarily reproducible or well regarded sometimes by scientists. But the Lomequi tools are definitely... They are manufactured tools. The question about that one is more about the date, whether or not it's that old. But I've seen casts of the pieces and, you know, classic everything you want in a stone tool, non-local materials at the site. So it's an interesting thing. And it's just like one of those things where when somebody makes this big discovery, you're just going to have to wait. And in the case of archaeology, sometimes a decade before mm. we either collect more data or end up not having enough to stand yeah. by yeah. it, right? Sure. I have yeah, never I heard that of those. That, that was going to be my comment. Yeah. It just takes time, especially because the, the actual um, preservation of that stuff is, <clears throat> you know, we only have a few skeletons of folks living back in that that time, let alone stone tool technology. So I'm super interested to see how that goes, you know, in the future and see if that's going to be like a, a really super hot topic in archaeology. Oh, these look legit. Yeah, we teach it. We teach it at our intro to archaeology class. Like, not as it it's verified, but like we we tell our students, like, hey, there is this possible other stone tool tech that's older. And then, like, also, you know, stone preserves. But you know, there it's possible that there might have been 
wood tools being produced, you know, kind of like similar to chimpanzees, uh, maybe more intricate or, or compound, but we'll never see those in the archaeological record because, you know, they deteriorate and definitely over, years. you know, <laughs> millions of years. Yeah. Yeah. One last thing I'll say on that. When I teach about the Lumekwi, I like to teach it as like somebody really, really clever, maybe three million years ago, banged these rocks together and turned them into tools. And for whatever reason, there wasn't enough of a like cultural or like collaborative structure to make that pass on to a whole population. And you do see this a lot in primates where individuals will invent something and then fail to pass it on to other um, individuals in the group. So it's like a something that failed to go viral, like a one single event type thing, which is cool to think like about. Like this podcast? Maybe if they were vegetarian, they would have been more intelligent to pass it on. Hey, <laughs> oh, you're, you're quoting that dude from my comments. Yeah. yeah. Yes, I am. <laughs> okay. I thought you were, okay. Yeah. <laughs> this guy tried to tell us that my ethno account that people couldn't have done. I don't remember what it was. Carlton, you remember what it was? He was like, how do we know people killed, uh, you know, stuff like killed things because like, where's the water? And like, there's blood everywhere, which is blood. Oh, yeah. and gross. It was like the craziest argument. There was just like, what? Like people yeah. need to be around water. And we know that people ate meat and it was just the funniest Cut goddamn conversation. Bones. Cut Mark bones. Done. <laughs> conversation over. Yeah, that's all. That's literally all we had to say. But, but yeah, I, I was, think, I think I was it went on aggravated when I was replying to him because every now and then David would be like, "Look at this idiot," <laughs> and then I just get for some reason I get defensive over David, and I just have to go like <laughs> shut down people. I'm too nice. <laughs> I just sick my bulldog out over the Carlton's like, "Yeah, explain that with some data, bitch." <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's just. It's great. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I think that wraps up the first section. Uh, we're going to, you know, we'll be back with uh, Lana Ruck from University of Indiana Bloomington uh, here in segment two. So uh, enjoy these amazing commercials by uh, our some of our colleagues and especially our good producer, Tristan Boyle. All right. Welcome back. Uh, this is session two of episode 16 of the Life in Ruins podcast. And uh, we're here with Lana Ruck. So, Lana, real quick, to you've talked about some pretty interesting concepts in terms of thinking about when did humans first become right-hand dominant. Um, so, for your dissertation research, like what sort of data could you collect, and like just give us, you know, the elevator pitch for what you do and why you do it, and maybe some funny stories, and uh, that go along with uh, some of the participants you've seen. Okay, so yeah, I'm interested in right-handedness, and I'll get into why that is in a minute. But what I'm doing for my dissertation is I'm taking right-handed people and left-handed people, and I'm training them to make really simple stone tools. They watch a really short video, and then they spend about an hour just napping cores, just banging rock and trying to get pieces off. And after they learn a little bit about how difficult it is to make stone tools, I put them in an MRI brain scanner. So this is like a $3.5 million machine that's used really, really often in psychological research. As far as people who study things like stone tool making in the context of brain imaging, there are maybe like seven of us in the world. Um, so yeah, so I put them in a brain scanner and I show them videos of tools being made and I have them do some language tasks and some other tasks in the scanner and basically see what parts of the brain are they using in order to process that kind of information. And is there overlap 
between what they're doing when they're doing language and what they're what's going on in their brain when they're watching tool making and the handedness thing it's difficult to explain because there's so many little components to it but basically your brain is organized into two hemispheres and right-handers have language centers in the left hemisphere of their brain and they also have tool like tools and tool making that's also on the left half of their brain and so people think that that whole system evolved as one thing instead of as separate components because evolution doesn't start from nowhere it works on pre-existing things so there's lots of hypotheses about how tool making and language could have co-evolved yeah so i i basically teach people to make stone tools and then see what it looks like in their brain what what's going on when they process tool making information does it have anything to do with language networks and how does that relate to their handedness yeah so just to clarify (laughs) you put people in a 3.5 million dollar machine yes it is a giant magnet and it works by essentially tracking molecules in blood it tracks like um magnetic molecules okay. uh, hemoglobin and so when your brain is being particularly active and neurons are firing it consumes blood in a localized area in a very small area of the brain and the machine can pick that up So you like play videos or, you know, actually, it might actually be a good idea to get get Carlton to describe what he did in the scanner when he wasn't sleeping, of course, (laughs) because he was my worst participant I have ever run for the whole study. Yeah, I was gonna and ask, I'm at like 35 people so far, so. (laughs) I was going to ask why you let Carlton even, even like a mile, within a mile of a $3.5 million machine. (laughs) <laughs> yeah uh, so, so remind me to tell the story of when he was at my experiment oh shit <laughs> we'll do it later we'll do it later uh, um so three things happened um lana asked me to participate and i of course said yes and she paid me for it which was cool which i feel really bad for because i was the worst participant step one is she had me do these tests it looked like a pegboard with different activities on it and to track how quickly i could do it with one hand versus the other hand um, this was all recorded then the next thing i had to do she put me at the station i was being video recorded and audio recorded and um, she basically had a bunch of Lego blocks out and um, she had like designs of Lego. She's like, I need you to build this. And I was like, okay. And I fucking love Legos. So I was all about it. And I was putting them together and uh, just to see how quick I could do it and all this other stuff. And it was fine. And like, I couldn't, I couldn't manipulate the pieces before I placed them. I would basically, and I had to have one hand on the table. So I'd had to take one at a time and put it on, which was fucking infuriating. Cause after being like a Lego connoisseur, like all my life until I, you know, became an adult when I was 20, I, I had my own system. Anyways, that's irrelevant. <laughs> and then I had to do a puzzle and the, I vividly remember this puzzle. And I know she does. And here's some audio recording of that puzzle. So yeah, I was pretty, pretty obnoxious during that whole thing. And I've, kind of figured out the experiment because there was a little there was there i could tell there it took me a while but she had divided these things equally i realized later on and that there's different spaces that technically if they were from the left side i should have been using my left hand and if they're from right side but because i'm an idiot 
And Lana's behind me. I go, oh, I get it now. And she's like, shut the fuck up. Stop. Just keep doing what you were doing. Don't change anything. And I was like, oh, I, I kind of figured out the experiment. I was like, oh, this is got you. And then the entire time I wouldn't shut up. And then she's like, you need to be silent during this thing. But I'm like sitting there complaining about like, why is the Spinosaurus aegypticus in the wrong, you know, uh, setup? And like, why are some of the dinosaurs of this puzzle have skin and some are fossilized? And I'm like, where's Mr. Cardigan's shoes? Um <laughs> So that was all like one day. And then we came back and to be fair, the night before we were, we, we had, she had company over and you know, as adults do, we drank, but the MRI was like at eight o'clock in the morning. And the like house. The, it was at nine 30. <laughs> <laughs> it was at nine 30 in the morning. And, um, we didn't go to, we, it was a late night. I, I walk in there, I'm wearing my dinosaur space pants, which many of you are familiar with. Like, I'm just comfortable. Uh, Lana's, uh, one of her, the guys that works in MRI, he was there. And what is his name again? His name is Isaiah. He had a very terrible very first impression of you with your bleary eyes and your space pants. And then you get in the machine and you fell asleep. <laughs> Like, this machine, the way it works is, like, by making these radio frequency pulses. Have any of you ever had an MRI? Yeah. The point is, it's fucking loud. And so, it's a loud machine, and there are rocks banging and videos playing in front of this guy's Mm -hmm. eyes, and he's falling asleep. And I'm like, oh, my God. Like, this is the MRI technician's holiday, because it was Thanksgiving break. He came in special to run this scan and he's just like, what the fuck? So we've talked about it after the fact and Carlton has grown on this man over time, but he wanted me to say something specifically about this. He said when Carlton walked in, he looked like he came out of the eye of terror, (laughs) which is some nerdy joke that I guess they share now. But the other thing I wanted to say is this co-host of yours is literally so stupid that he still doesn't get the point of the puzzle because he described it wrong. <laughs> God damn it. So if, if I could maybe explain that for a second, how do we feel about that? Yes. Yes. Yeah, yes. please do. Okay. Remind me, I have a question about science. <laughs> in a minute, okay. Um, Alexa. Okay. <laughs> okay. Oh my god. Fuck me. Okay, 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 okay. So, one thing about my research is there's this idea that you can use the evolution of handedness as like a proxy behavior to study like the evolution of this system division in the brain. So, like, if you're right handed, we know how your brain is organized, and presumably, if you're left handed, your brain should be op- oppositely organized. Okay, that's the idea. And it turns out that like a lot of recent studies in neuroscience, they are not finding that to be the case. They're finding that left-handed people have brain organization really similar to right-handers. Does that make sense? Okay, so then it throws the whole evolutionary track, like the anthropological perspective, way out of whack. Um, But me coming from anthropology and realizing like, how do we measure handedness in humans versus how do we measure it in other animals... I realized that like billions of dollars of psychological research 
the way that they assess handedness is by giving people a 10 question survey and that's it. That's the only measure. So I would put people in a $3.5 million brain scanner, or I would sequence their DNA for thousands of dollars. But my actual measure of whether they were right or left-handed would be one single 10-question survey. So no actual physical use exactly. of, of the left exactly. or right Exactly. Oh, my gosh. Right. So realizing this, I was like, well, what if it's actually the case that left-handers are really right-handed in their behaviors, too, And then it makes sense for them to have like a right-hander looking brain because they're actually using their right hand a lot more often than they acknowledge. So Mm. before I even train people to do the stone tool making or put them in the scanner, they come in and do all these tasks in my lab and their hand performance skill measures and hand preference skill measures. So what I'm actually measuring when people are picking up Legos or playing with the puzzle, I'm measuring which hand they're choosing And like, so left-handers who will score as very left-handed on this 10 question survey, they then come in the lab and they use their right hand almost 90% of the time. And that's regardless of whether they're reaching for a puzzle piece or a Lego piece on the right side of their body or on the left side. So they're reaching across the table when they like with their right hand, when they should actually be reaching with their left hand and right-handers do not do that. Um, right-handers like almost solely use their right hand. Like Carlton noticed, he was like, wow, I haven't touched a single piece with my left hand. And I'm like, you're perfectly on brand right now. But now that you've realized it, you're fucking up my data. Can you just go back to being a normal right-hander, please? We really want that. Um, So yeah, so from the evolutionary side, I have a lot of things on my disc or my dissertation. But from the psychological side, what I'm essentially doing is a a critique of a methodology that is so pervasive that like pretty much any study on handedness might be based on a flawed measure of handedness. And that's really concerning from that field's perspective. So you're walking in as an anthropologist, walking into psychology, which is a soft science, be like, what up, bitches? Y'all are wrong. (laughs) Yeah, dude, that's the goal. Yeah, yeah. And um, most people are really, yeah. um, Most people get scared by that. Because so one really good example, there's this data bank, and it's called the UK Biobank. And it has 30,000 participants, all of whom have had their entire genome sequenced, all of whom have been scanned with these fancy brain imaging techniques. And they've done like every psychological assessment that you can do. These people were paid thousands of dollars to do basically every psychological assessment ever made. But their handedness measure is a 10 question survey. And these are the things that you see in like IFL science or discover whatever, like left-handed people are schizophrenic or left-handed people are really creative or things like that. And it's like, actually how y'all are defining left-handers is a little scary. So some anthropologist is just coming in here and like changing the game on this like that. I'm trying to, but I want to do it, you know, very empirically. I have an idea that they're doing things wrong and there are a couple studies that are coming out with these naturalistic measures of handedness that are kind of calling into question this survey. But, you know, the psychologists use it for a really good reason and it's expedient. It's really quick and easy to do. And most of them actually use it just to exclude left-handers from their studies because there's this idea that left-handers have weird brains. You don't really want them in your sample because they add variation. So they use the 10 question survey, realize you're left-handed and then they never talk to you again. The real problem is people who are actually researching handedness and then measuring it wrong. Hmm. So, 
But it's like time will tell if I can convince the field that we, we should be a little bit skeptical. But I, I, this is what I like about being an interdisciplinary researcher. I think if I hadn't come from like the ape handedness literature where people have to watch apes interact with objects and with each other in order to find out if they're left or right hand dominant, I wouldn't have ever thought of it. I would have thought a survey is totally adequate. But we can't give yeah. surveys to infants. We can't give surveys to apes. We can't give them to other animals. And it's like, maybe we should be watching human behaviors too. So, yeah. Check out the big brain on Brad. <laughs> You're a smart That's right. I did do that. That's amazing. <laughs> um, I, wow. Yeah. I know, I was right, gonna Connor, ask you, can you away. give us an example of? Or if you, if you can remember, like one of the questions on the survey for handedness, like, is it like, do you wake up in the morning and use your right foot first after you get out of bed or? Yeah, no, solid question. And I'm such a nerd that I know all of the questions pretty much by heart, but it's basically a rank scale. So you have the choice for all of these questions you have. I always use my right hand. I sometimes use my right hand. I equally use both hands. I always use my, or I sometimes use my left hand. I always use my left hand. So it goes from very right-hand bias to very left-hand bias. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then the questions are, it literally just says the word writing. And so for me, I would say writing, I always use my right hand. And then the next question is fork. When you're using a fork, what hand do you use? I always use my right hand. Um, another one is opening the lid of a box, like which hand is on the lid. Another one is dealing a deck of cards, which hand is the dealing hand. They That's have a question, question about, this one's actually really funny now because we all have like Roombas and shit and we don't clean our houses because <laughs> we're too busy. But one of them is which hand is on top when you use a broom. And they found that that one, if you give the same person the survey over and over again, they just keep switching back and forth their answer. So even within somebody, they're not self-aware enough to know the correct answer for them, what hand they have on the top for a broom. What is a broom? So it's questions like that. Exactly. <laughs> right. Precisely. So yeah, it's questions like that. So from a primate or a psychological or an anthropological standpoint, and speaking to a clearly very intelligent person, where or what do you think the function of handedness is evolutionarily? Oh, that's such a good question. I think it facilitates social learning to match your person that you're learning from, but it's a lot more complicated than that. Handedness is probably actually a consequence of genes that code for hemispheric specialization in the brain. So it's not actually about handedness in the beginning. It's more about we need to make a brain with two hemispheres and we need to divide tasks between those hemispheres in order for the brain to be able to do so much at the same time. And this is way before our human lineage. This is before primates. Like this goes back all the way to mammals. Especially Lizard mammals. brain. So the my mouth is like wide the fuck open. Right now. <laughs> it's a fascinating topic. And so the thing is, is like what's really unique about humans is this like 85% right-handed, 15% left-handed split. That is super unique in our species. Like individual apes will have a right or left-hand preference, but it's randomly distributed between left and right. There's some tantalizing evidence that you might inherit handedness from your parents, um, even in apes. Okay. 
But it's like something somewhere after we split from our other ape ancestors drove this population to go towards one direction. And we don't really understand what it is. I think it's learning really complicated bimanual skills, skills that you required task differentiation between the hands. And stone tool making is the perfect example of that. It's a really difficult task. You have to practice at it. You have to have good task division between your hands. And that's something that would really yeah. easily, because it's such an adaptive behavior, could be part of this whole going from a 50-50 population for right-handers and left-handers to something like 90-10 really quickly because you're all trying to learn these skills in a social sense and it it benefits you to all be on kind of the same page. But the whole handedness literature, like why do left-handers still exist? Good question. We don't know yet. Um, was this like a fast evolution wow. or a slow one? We don't know yet. How would we even assess handedness evolution in the archaeological record? Like you could do it with paired long bones of an individual. So uh, is everyone here right-handed? Me, you, Carlton? What up? You know I'm right-handed. I took your goddamn test. I don't know. You really fucked up. So you're throwing <laughs> that. <at me. laughs> but so right-handers and left-handers, like the hand that you prefer, you end up with more robust and stronger bones when you die. Sure. So if you have paired long bones, you could do that. But in the hominins or in our ancestors, there are what, like 10 people with pen paired hand or like paired bones. So anyways, I'm going on a really long tangent, but no, no, <laughs> my original good. research, my master's was, Stone tools are the most available evidence for assessing handedness because if you can tell the handedness of an individual tool maker using either the tools they make mm -hmm. or the debitage, which is their byproducts of manufacture, if you can tell in that whether somebody was right or left-handed, then you could make like a site-wise population estimate, then a regional estimate, and you could do this through time and see when we went from something like 50-50 to something like 90-10. And then that would also tell you like a general timeline for when this like very specialized hemisphere task division of labor like happened in the brain. That's the big idea. Well, that's absolutely amazing, Lana. But the, uh, you know, yeah. big hand on the clock Whoa. is telling us tickety talk time to stop. <laughs> and uh, so we'll be right back after the rest, all of our listeners sit there in an existential crisis, look, trying to reveal and think back on all the how handy they are. So, uh, yeah, we'll be right back with uh, segment three of a Life in Ruins podcast, episode 16. And we're back with the last segment of episode 16 with Lana Ruck. Um, so one of the coolest things about this study was um, when uh, Miss Ruck had me producing Old One Stone Technology, she recorded it and made a bunch of gifts out of it, which you guys saw on our Life in Ruins podcast back in uh, November. So, uh would you like to tell us like kind of what inspired you to do that and kind of some of the other things that go along with your social media presence? So I'll start by saying that I'm actually quite bad at social media, but one of the things that I'm really passionate about aside from my actual research is um, science communication or SciComm, um, which you guys have talked about before on this podcast. So I think making things accessible, like this is how we collect our data. And today Carlton's like banging rocks together. Isn't that cool? That's part of science. Um, I'm super passionate about that. As you guys introed me, I write an editor at large. So I'm technically like the boss of a science blog at IU that's run through the College of Arts and Sciences. Um, so I do a lot of science writing. I've also written for like uh, psychology newsletters 
and I'm starting to pitch to bigger outlets like Sapiens and um, Brain Facts. I'm trying to get a fellowship to work with the American Association for the Advancement of Science. So on top of all the things that I do in my like, I don't know, professional life in the strict sense, I also do a lot of SciComm. Um, I lead workshops. So yeah, making gifts of you guys and giving them to you so that you can post on social media. Like today, I was part of a science experiment where I learned to make stone tools. Like people love that. And I think they should, because I think we should be getting people out in the real world excited about what we're doing. I think it should be a really valued part of our job. Yeah, absolutely. And especially yeah, if you can make uh, incriminating gifts of Carlton, that would that would be great. I have those. Like what? I don't know. Just something incriminating. I'll work on it. I'm Thank sure you. I've got some content in there. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, with... The way he generated data, just woof. There was a lot going on, man. Can we get a picture of his MRI? Yeah, you can actually. Uh, he would have to consent to it because you know, like I have to follow FBI research. <laughs> Is it just a big, ba- big black hole? There's nothing. Yeah, there. it's just liquid. There's nothing there. I don't know how he's doing everything he's doing, which is just fucking up my data collection. So it's really not that much. So okay, <laughs> yeah, no, uh, kind of segueing. So. How how do you find it doing SciComm within an academic context? Is that particularly difficult? I would say yes. So one thing that I want to mention, I I essentially the blog I run and all the science communication that I do is technically part of my university. The College of Arts and Sciences wanted to start a science blog, and that was four years ago, and we did. Um, and I lead a lot of my workshops through that. But so the way our blog works is we publish once a week and we're written by graduate students and postdocs. So every week on the blog is somebody else's content. Um, we have like regular writers and we have guest writers. But like one thing that's really difficult about producing content 52 weeks a year when your writers are grad students is that we're really, really busy. The yeah. market for academics right now means that basically PhD students and postdocs are bending over backwards and killing themselves to try and produce a good enough CV to get a job in a market where there are not enough jobs. And this, and so, and like a science blog doesn't necessarily like add to your CV enough to almost justify the time a little bit. Yeah. So there's this pervasive idea that things like SciComm or even teaching or basically anything you do that isn't getting you towards a peer-reviewed publication is a waste of your time. And so we've had bloggers who have actively fought with their advisors to try and write for the blog. We've had people have to quit because their advisor told them, if you keep doing this, you're going to have to leave my lab. And it's really unfortunate because we people who write for the blog and stay on and work with us tend to find it one of the more rewarding things that they do in their academic life. And I think this is a huge topic that needs to be discussed more in academia because I think like things like SciComm have a way higher impact on the real world than, in my view, a peer-reviewed publication does. So heard that. Yeah, exactly right. So like I have published a decent amount of articles because I'm on the grind, but like I maybe have 10 or 15 citations to my name. Every blog post I write gets 400 or 500 viewers. I, I can say, like, I feel very fortunate having the advisor that I do 
who I mean, this podcast, as David and and Concrete can attest to, takes up a considerable amount of time. And my advisors never once asked me to stop. There was mention of it, but it wasn't from him. Um, he supported it. And uh, I know like uh, our friend, my one of my colleagues, Devin Pettigrew, um, Instagram at uh, ar.adelattle is just starting his his public outreach via Instagram because he, he basically saw David's ethnosynology and said, Oh, huh, that'd be cool. And I was like, dude, you do some cool ballistics research with ancient weapons. Like people would eat that shit up. Yeah. He's off to a, like a fantastic start. It looks like he's been doing it for a while. It's basically because I tell him what you've told us to do with our podcast on Instagram mm-hmm. and what you do. I basically was like, this is the model that you follow. And we featured Devin, um, both as my first instant archeology. span And then like, uh, we've done a couple things with him and I mean, I was, he was, he's older he's like 35 36 and he was like i don't understand this and we were in the lab talking about it and uh my our advisor came in i was like what are you guys he's like what the fuck are you talking about and we were explaining it to him and then our advisor was like no that's very important keep doing that and uh yeah it's kind of it's like really nice to get that because like you know a lot of my colleagues especially you know since i'm still in academia they're like i don't know how you do what you do and do what you're supposed to do. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a balancing act, but like if, if, you know, doing this podcast has made me realize what's most important in my life. I thought for a while it was academia and like teaching at a university and through this and through the work that I do with the Pawnee nation, I realized like, you know what, what matters most to me is making sure that the Pawnee nation knows their history and that the American public knows their science. Like, this is what I look forward to every week. And this is like, I think this is more important. Like, you know, people talk about my thesis, maybe like 20 people have read my thesis, but more than a couple hundred have seen my YouTube video on my thesis and like hear the podcast, especially like, I love my research. Don't get me wrong, but my research is for the academic community to show that I'm valid. Whereas this podcast and the Instagram And like, I don't have many publications, but I have a lot of presentations trying to talk to the public. Like, this is what I'm doing and this is what matters. And it's, you know, yeah, it's also probably, you know, why I get defensive over David's ethnosynology when people ask fucking stupid things or no, they don't ask stupid things when they say stupid shit. That's not like a question. That's very much like, it's like, well, and it's like, no, this is, this is why. Anyways, that's, I'll get off my soapbox. Yeah, that was a big old soapbox. And I like hat tip, totally agree with you 100%. I think the reason I'm allowed to keep doing the psychom stuff that I do is because I, I, I'm still also doing all the other stuff, right? I'm publishing, I'm doing research, I'm writing my dissertation, I'm teaching and it's exhausting. But my perspective of it is everything I've learned from going to psychom conferences or working on a, like speaking to a public audience, especially as an interdisciplinary researcher, it has helped me in my development as a professional. So like when I had to write my two qualifying exams because I'm in two programs, everybody on my committee was like, these were some of the clearest qualifying exams papers we've read from students. And it's like, because I know how to pick an audience and write to them, not from academic training, 
But from thinking about it from a SciComm perspective, I really love teaching. Next year, I'm taking a teaching fellowship. And my teaching is way better because of the work I did in SciComm and the work that I still do in SciComm. And so for me, it's like, it's really good to get support from other academics. It's a little bit frustrating that it comes under the lens of, wow, you're really good at publishing and you're really good at teaching. We see that you also do the SciComm stuff. Keep it up. Whereas I'm like, the SciComm stuff is what's making me good at teaching and publishing. I wish you guys would understand that. And I I think it's going to become a really, really, really big conversation in the field in the next few years. You know, people are starting to have like SciComm conferences specifically in anthropology. And people are starting to realize that SciComm and service and things like that aren't like lesser than what we do as a community. And one thing that I really did want to bring up, like I am a decently well accomplished early career researcher because I have a lot of institutional support. Like I'm well-funded. I thank my advisors for that. They tolerate my passion for SciComm and teaching and things like that. But like, these are conversations that need to happen writ large across academia because essentially what we're doing right now is we're taking public money to do a bunch of research, to publish it in journals that are like accessible only by paid users, which are universities. So the public who pays taxes to fund our research can't even read what we write, let alone can they read it once they buy it because we're writing it in such a way that doesn't make any fucking sense. And so I think like thinking about what's most impactful as an academic is like working on our access and values models. Like we need to make access more open. And that includes like de-emphasizing publishing and peer-reviewed articles that are only accessible by us and increasing the Mm -hmm. way we talk and the way we care about audiences who don't know the words we want to use. And I think it really, it's going to have us question our values as an academic society. Do we want to keep valuing these peer-reviewed publications as the biggest part of a CV, or do we want more holistic individuals that maybe don't publish as much, but are doing other things that have a broader impact outside the university? All you said was absolutely brilliant. And, you know, I think that's, that's a a good cry and a good, or not a good cry, but a good um, rallying kind of idea that we need to all work on. Because at this point, as, as Dr. Anderson has said, we're being beat on the social media front we're getting absolutely tore apart by these um ancient aliens these graham hancocks they're more famous than the actual researchers who are doing the good research and figuring out like the the super interesting things that have happened in the human past so we it almost seems like that should be valued like you had mentioned that should be valued more because we we are losing this battle right now. It's, there's no doubting that. Yeah. So things that, you know, there, there are two, well, there are three things that really, really keep me up at night. One is the climate crisis, which, (laughs) you know, the climate crisis slash like capitalism. Two is the academic job market being the way that it is. And three is the rise of science, like science skepticism, which is like, well, the rise of, yeah, no, the rise of science skepticism. And I, you know, I think all of these things are related. And it's like, if we know that we're producing too many PhDs trying to get traditional academic jobs, 
And we also know that we're losing the battle for science skeptics and pseudoscience because we're not communicating to those people that those other people are, are getting in touch with, you know, like we're not accurately choosing our audience. We're choosing other academics who aren't going to get jobs probably as an academic. Like if we keep making these bad choices, like what right do we have to complain when people don't believe that indigenous societies could have built amazing structures and had complicated societies. Right. Or like Mm -hmm. what, what right do we have to complain about the job market when we're really doing nothing to train people for other jobs when it's clear that they're in demand and they would be valued in broader society. And so I get really frustrated by it and it really upsets me. But at the same time, I'm like, I'm on the grind. I'm in it. I'm partaking in a system that I really wish was different. And I currently don't know if the better way to fix things is from the inside or the outside. And I think that's how a lot of people probably feel right now. And, and it's just like another one of those things where we're just going to have to wait and see what happens, but we're going to need brave individuals. You know, like I love that you guys talked to Dr. Anderson about his career. Another person that I really, really enjoy is his colleague at Forbes. Her name is Dr. Christina Kilgrove. She left a tenured job to be a freelance science writer. And that's a bold move. That's a, That's a really bold move. Some people who are just like, I, I'm thinking about getting my PhD and maybe not even pursuing a tenure track job at a research institution, which is exactly what I'm being trained to do. And that would be a scary move. But it's like, do we need to make those scary moves? Do we need to make the scarier move of getting a job at an R1 university and then from the inside dismantling it? Who knows? Right. Um, but I think that's something that our generation is really pushing the field on. And it makes me really fucking excited that everybody is on the same page trying to make things better. I'd like to yeah. add, um, just to kind of like piggyback onto that. When I first saw your CV, I mentioned to you like how, in, how impressive it is. And for our listeners, like we, we ask all of our guests to send us their CV. So we have, you know, we know what content to ask and cool things. And once again, we find someone else who's associated with uh, Wyoming archeology span cause Lana did some time at hell gap can't get away from Wyoming apparently it was only but, one week and I only spent one day at Hellgap. I was actually in the broader Guernsey area thank you yeah I still met Marcel Kornfeld anyways do you remember like what you said when I when I complimented you on your CV uh probably not the exact words but I know it was probably something self-deprecating because as much as I do I still feel terribly anxious and behind all the time And that's another huge problem that you guys have talked about on this podcast Um, with the paleontologist. What was her name? Uh, That was Amy Atwater. Yeah, Yeah, you guys talked about like, and this is a huge topic that younger generations are bringing up too. Imposter syndrome is real. You can work hard and concerted and be really accomplished and be really impressive. And the way things are, for better or worse, you still feel like you need to be doing more. And I feel like a lot of us are so good at what we do. And it's also a problem that we're passionate about it, right? My work is my passion. So I'm capable of blurring lines between the two and overworking. And everybody else is doing the same thing. And I feel like we're all just like upping the ante on each other. And it pushes the science forward. But it's like, I have done quite a lot of things. And I still sometimes feel like I'm not doing enough. 
And I think that's just a really unfortunate consequence of the labor landscape of higher education right now. So we're like, we're pushing the discipline forward on the backs of people who might be suffering from extreme mental health problems. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's like, at what cost, if you're not making the impact you need to with the audiences you need to, and if you're not good for the people within your discipline, and if everybody's aware of this, but we can't really solve the problem because we're in this broader neoliberal train wreck that's going on in higher education, like, I'm not saying there are any easy solutions. And another thing that I want to circle back to is like, I have a really impressive CV because I was well-funded. And because when I got rejected the first time I applied to PhD programs, I was like, I'm never going to get rejected again. How do I do that? And that's a ridiculous perspective. But like, we need to think about these things and try to collaborate on them more than we need to be producing the peer-reviewed research that's getting us the jobs that end up being toxic towards the end. And that's just like, it's like a, a loop that we can't get out of. Um, One more thing I want to mention, there's a wonderful, wonderful article. I don't assign it when I teach classes, but I offer it to kids to read. Um, It's called The Neoliberal Arts, How College Sold Its Soul to the Market. Um, And it's from Harper's Magazine. It's from 2012. It is wonderfully written. It is about this topic. And I really think if you're into this, the last 10 minutes of our conversation, read this article and then start thinking about how you can make moves to make things better. Well, I definitely uh, am a huge proponent of that. Yeah. I hope to Christ whoever's trying to hire me at the end of my PhD. And if I sit there and be like, well, Mr. Gover, how come you haven't published much? Be like, do you see my podcast? I have over 20,000 downloads on my podcast. Uh, Don't listen to episode seven about me being in Ukraine. Don't listen to that one. That one never happened, but you can listen to the other. Um, So yeah, there's there's going to be a day of reckoning for me, but uh, you know, in a couple of years. That that's the thing though. I was I was applying or like fixing my resume like recently. Um, I'll say that much, and like I was like, what? How do I like qualify what I've been doing? Like I've written like a couple publications worth of words on my Instagram, but like, is that professional to put like professional Instagram on you know on my? my CV, but like, it is something that has research and like is cited and like, you know, I, I, it's not peer reviewed, but I just feel weird about that. Right. And, but and, and I, and I, I think it. that that's one of the issues is that we don't yet know how, you know, academics are obsessed with metrics and because it makes like culling the herd or thinning applications easier. We don't my, yeah. yet know as a discipline how to evaluate science communication or outreach or service type work. And at the very least, our generation is game to go ahead and try, right? And that's where this whole like maybe Mm -hmm. taking the system over from the inside would be a good thing. Like what if hiring committees did value service? And I know some of them are. And like what if hiring committees did see what you do on your Instagram and who you reach and the like content that you're creating it is exactly the same quality as a peer-reviewed publication in my perspective and in some other people's as well. We need those people on hiring committees. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, it's like how to get from where we are now, knowing all the problems and knowing potential ways forward. What are the brass tacks? How do we get to that? In addition, 
I don't in, know. In man. addition to like actually po- <laughs> like uh, posting stuff yeah. and communicating on blogs, it's the it's the conversation that you have on those those things that is super important because you are engaging with the active with the public who is obviously like you mentioned fun- funding our work. So we really hope that um, you can you can tear it down from the inside, Lana, and and keep doing the good work you're doing because. I'm going to try. I'm going to try. Okay, well, we would, we will be here supporting you through it all. Because this is a life in ruins, we asked this weird question about like why you would choose to live this life in ruins. I don't know. It's like a weird thing. Given the option, if you could do it again, would you live your life in ruins all over? 100%. I would absolutely do it again. Awesome. That's what we like to hear. Well, everyone, we just interviewed Lana Rock, who is a dual PhD student, editor-at-large for SciU Blog, and all-around cool cat. You can follow her on Twitter, at Lana Ruck, and Instagram, at Lana Lately. So, once again, everyone, thank you for uh, bearing with us through episode 16. We will see you on the flip side. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at A Life in Ruins Podcast. And you can also email us at A Life in Ruins Podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. Hey, gentlemen and ladies. Hello, Connor. I have a question for you. What's up? Uh, so why did the hunter-gatherer predominantly use her right hand to chop, slice, and cut? She didn't want anything left to chance. (laughs) Jesus. Okay. Thank you, Connor. As always. The show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. I got to tell that story before I break. So I'm doing... (laughs) I'm doing my thesis experiment. It was a ballistics experiment. It had like bow and arrow thing rigged up to this machine that shot arrows into ballistics gel. It was awesome. And I did it at this like archery range and they were nice enough to let me do it. And I just like prayed to God that like no one came in to shoot bows that day while I was in there with all this like equipment and stuff. And of course this like local pastor comes in to shoot his bow and he's wearing his like pastor collar. I don't know whatever that Christian oh, stuff is, no. but he, he's sitting there with that. And then like, we're having a nice conversation with him and he's like so supportive and he's the nicest man. And then Carlton, I had texted be like, Hey, come on, check out my experiment. Carlton busts in in his frat pink shirt with the collar. <laughs> and I don't know what else you're at. You're in a green, green sweater green vest polo. with the pink yeah. shirt. Green polo, okay, with the, the something like the collar sticking out, and you walk in, take a look, and I'm like, this man is so nice. What is Carlton going to say? And you walk up, and you're like, this is scientific <laughs> as fuck. <laughs> and I was like, oh god, <laughs> what's up? This is Carlton. I say that's like ten out of ten psychom right there. That's it. <laughs> Reaching the audience, getting what you need to come across. That's perfect. Oh, God. Didn't someone say what was it was the God? Um, 
uh, what is her name? Um, anyways, no, it's it's one of the that's the individual that offered to um, transcribe all of our episodes. Paris. No, not Amelia. Oh, Paris. Paris. I remember we we posted something when I was like talking about my uh, cousin who works at NMAI, and she just goes, "Why is it always Carlton with these stories?" <laughs> <laughs> so i just i don't know i think it's me because I, I i don't know i attract it also thanks for listening paris she's a big yeah, fan thank you paris all right that's it <laughs>